forbidden and banned, the bane of bureaucrats, exposing mainstream media's weapons of mass distraction. Flying under the radar and dropping truth bombs on tyranny. It's Liberty Now. Throughout America's adventure in free government, our basic purposes have been to keep the peace, to foster progress in human achievement, and to enhance liberty, dignity, and integrity among peoples and among nations. To strive for less would be unworthy of a free and religious people. Any failure traceable to arrogance or our lack of comprehension or readiness to sacrifice would inflict upon us grievous hurt, both at home and abroad. Welcome to Liberty Now. This is your host, John Bird, trainer, piper, Navy diver, and Liberty lover. Thank you for hitting that play button. This is your place for discerning minds and common sense. Today, I want to talk about the big picture. Rather than going on about the current wars, border crises, pandemics, or election fraud, I want to look at the main source of all the geopolitical chaos going on. And I know many of you are aware of this, but I'd like to provide you with some sources to back that up. A few voices from history who have been warning about this for a very long time. That opening that you heard at the beginning was Dwight Eisenhower in his farewell address in 1961. Now, he's just one of the voices warning us about the very dangers that we are facing right now today. What are the warnings about? Well, the general theme is that we are in danger of a top-down global takeover by a very small ruling elite of bureaucrats and technocrats. So who are these global elite? Well, they would include members of the Bilderberg Group, the banking elite from the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, to globalist leaders like Klaus Schwab, George Soros, and industry controllers like Bill Gates and Anthony Fauci, to name a few. Over it all, it has been suggested that there may be 13 families of ruling elite who believe that they should control the 99.99% of the rest of us. So how can they do this? Well, two of the major ways are through consolidated ownership and or influence politically and economically. Economically, through asset management firms like BlackRock and Vanguard, the two biggest, they exert a heavy influence over every industry, including legacy media and big pharma. Politically, they compromise or influence political leaders through the World Economic Forum and programs like the YGL, or Young Global Leaders. Graduates include the likes of Barack Obama, Vladimir Putin, Jacinda Ardern, Justin Trudeau, to name a few. I'm going to play you a clip of Klaus Schwab where he brags about the, how they penetrate the cabinets of some of the world's biggest governments. When I mention our names like Mrs. Merkel, um, even uh, Vladimir Putin and so on, they all have been young global leaders of the World Economic Forum. Mm -hmm. But... Um, what we are very proud of now is the young generation like uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, 
um, president of, Brazil, of uh, Argentina and so on, that we penetrate the cabinets. So yesterday I was at a, at a reception for Prime Minister Trudeau and I know that half of this cabinet or even more half of, uh, half of this cabinet are for our actually young global leaders of the world economy forum. And there are many more clips like that you can find out there on the internet. And they can also do this through activism disguised as philanthropy. Financiers such as George Soros, many of you have already heard of, who founded the Open Society Foundation. One example, April 16th, 2018, Soros's philanthropy gave $100,000 to AFGJ, 50,000 in 2004 and 50,000 in 2006, acting as a fiscal sponsor. AFGJ gave $50,000 to Refuse Fascism and Unincorporated Antifa Group. Fiscal sponsors are recognized tax-exempt 501c nonprofits that take in donations on behalf of unincorporated or small groups so that donors can take advantage. George Soros also helped overthrow Ukraine in 2014 through a massive propaganda campaign and funded Zelensky's, quote, election. And here's a clip of him bragging about his role in that. I set up a foundation in Ukraine before Ukraine became independent of uh, Russia. Um, and the foundation has been uh, functioning ever since. And it played a, an important part in events now. So what are the warnings about specifically? What's the threat to you and me? Well, some of these elites may have conflicting or differing interests, but they all seem to have two things in common. Two of the main things are, number one, they would first have us all living under one world government tyranny with the same freedoms as Chinese people now enjoy, which is none. China is the model for the planet's future with omnipresent surveillance, social credit scores, and complete control through a government-controlled CBDC, or central bank digital currency, monitoring and controlling your every purchase. Along with CBDCs will be a UBI, or universal basic income, which will not only put governments further in debt, but also kill the incentive to work or innovate or contribute to GDP, where the state controls every aspect of your life. And if you think I'm exaggerating, I'm going to play you a propaganda piece from the United Nations in uh, one of an animated series of Plandopolis cartoons, videos of what you can expect in your daily life in the not so distant future. Now, for those of you who aren't watching the video right now, I'll just read the introductory screens for you. How will people travel in the cities of the future? Mega cities on the move your guide to the future of sustainable urban mobility in 2040. Plandopolis, one of four possible scenarios. In a world of fossil fuels and expensive energy, the only solution is tightly planned and controlled urban transport. And then we're counting the years forward from 2015 through 2023, 24, all the way through 2040. Welcome to the Plandopolis, a day in the life of V. Oh, hi. 
I'm so glad you're on time. I'm V. I'm looking forward to showing you around Plandopolis today. My husband works from home. He's a virtual engineer working on one of the city's desalination plants. He controls the robots who do all the important maintenance. I think he basically plays computer games for a living. <laughs> you ready to go? Have you got your calorie card open on your smartphone? I registered your visit with Slick Travel Corp the other day, so they've uh, allotted you a journey time to, to match mine. It makes so much sense, doesn't it? Switch off brain and go to work. <laughs> with this many people around, I'm glad there's a mega computer in charge. We're so lucky. Uh, our kids were allocated a school quite near my practice so I can drop them off on the way. It saves on our calorie ration. Well, it won't be long until the little darlings get their career announcements. They've been working so hard, so I'm sure they'll get something good. N not that there's anything wrong with fixing carbon scrubbers for a living or anything. Are you hungry? Let's pop to the market as we're passing. Right, what's on the menu this month? No, not meat. It's not your birthday. The Global Food Council are doing a really good job of keeping food production going. I mean, you don't get the choice you used to, but we're better off than most. I think it's probably easiest to walk from here. You barely see a car in the city centre nowadays, unless you're rich. <laughs> oh, the state knows they just aren't practical anymore. We're all trying to meet our global carbon deal. Electric bikes are so much better for getting around our neighbourhood. And why waste valuable space on car parks when you can use them to grow food? I don't care what you say, Alex. They don't deserve to live in that ghetto. They are completely disconnected. No high-speed transport system, no new internet. They miss out on jobs and many essential services, too. Oh, hi again. <laughs> what a day. I had to make a, an emergency visit to the Cry Freedom ghettos. I mean, I miss my sister like mad, but I'm glad they went when they moved to New Amsterdam. They're safe from climate change on the floating city. <laughs> that must be her now. It's much easier to meet up with friends virtually now. So many cities have banned cars in central areas. So there you go. One of the scenarios by Forum for the Future. I think most people would consider a dystopia rather than utopian future. The number two threat that we should be most concerned about is a global massive reduction in population by some estimates up to 90% of our current population, or more, depending on whose blueprint you're reading. According to the recently exploded Georgia Guidestones, many of you may have heard that someone anonymously blew up the Georgia Guidestones, which had been very unpopular with people for a long time. They've been blown up just as mysteriously as they were erected. Nobody could really trace back who funded them. But there's a sort of, uh, granite or stone, Stonehenge sort of structure. And these stones are engraved in multiple different languages with a sort of revised New World Order Ten Commandments. The first of those inscriptions is maintain humanity under 500 million in perpetual balance with nature. Nothing to be concerned about there. I'm going to provide a link for you in the show notes where you can go read more about that yourself. So let's get into some of the voices from the past, just some of the most notable over the decades, starting with C.S. Lewis. In his 1958 essay, 
willing slaves of the welfare states. Remember, this is 1958. Quote, the new oligarchy must increasingly rely on the advice of scientists until, in the end, politicians become merely the scientists' puppets. So some more writings from C.S. Lewis. He also wrote a space trilogy, which a lot of people aren't aware of. I wasn't aware of myself uh, until a friend recommended it to me. And uh, it's a great series of books. And it's he talks about sort of a, his allegory of... Uh, about uh, where man is headed. It, it starts all the way with a sort of allegory for the creation story, all the way through to what we can expect in the future. But uh, from his third book in the Space Trilogy, That Hideous Strength, he warns about the transhuman death cult. This is a discussion between some of the technocrats at Oxford University. Quote, What are you driving at, Professor? said Gould. After all, we are organisms ourselves. I grant it. That is the point. In us, organic life has produced mind. It has done its work. After that, we want no more of it. We do not want the world any longer furred over with organic life, like what you call the blue mold, all sprouting and budding and breeding and decaying. We must get rid of it. By little and little, of course. Slowly we learn how. Learn to make our brains live with less and less body. Learn to build our bodies directly with chemicals. No longer have to stuff them full of dead brutes and weeds. Learn how to reproduce ourselves without copulation. End quote. And then further along in the story at uh, the university there, quote, Belbury people have, for all practical purposes, discovered a way of making themselves immortal. There was a moment's silence, and then he continued. It is the beginning of what is really a new species, the chosen heads who never die. They will call it the next step in evolution, and henceforward all the creatures that you and I call human are mere candidates for admission to the new species, or else its slaves, perhaps its food. Now I want to play you a clip from a BBC documentary about George Orwell. Now they have an actor playing George Orwell that is not actually him. Uh, it's believed that there really isn't any video or audio recordings of him. But all the words that he speaks through the actor are his own. And this was from George Orwell speaking in 1947. I'll play that for you now. But he left one final warning. 1984 is, I believe, a quite terrifying masterpiece. So terrifying, in fact, I don't think I should like to read another like it. I am not absolutely dissatisfied with it. I think it is a good idea, but the execution would have been better if I had not been under the influence of TB when I wrote it. You once claimed that you have an ability to face unpleasant facts. Is that what you've demonstrated in 1984 by drawing an accurate portrait of the future? I think that allowing for the book being, after all, a parody, something like 1984 could actually happen. This is the direction the world is going in at the present time. In our world, there will be no emotions except fear, rage, triumph and self-abasement.
the sex instinct will be eradicated, we shall abolish the orgasm, there will be no loyalty except loyalty to the party. But always there will be the intoxication of power. Always, at every moment, there will be the thrill of victory, the sensation of trampling on an enemy who is helpless. If you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stamping on a human face forever. The moral to be drawn from this dangerous nightmare situation is a simple one. Don't let it happen. It depends on you. Next up, we have Robert Welch, who warned us back in 1958, shortly after he formed the John Birch Society. I'm going to play you a clip from an exclusive speech he gave in 1974, reiterating what he talked about in 1958. Here it is. That plan, of course, is to induce the gradual surrender of American sovereignty, piece by piece and step by step, to various international organizations of which the United Nations is the outstanding but far from the only example. Now here are the aims for the United States. One, greatly expanded government spending for every conceivable means of getting rid of ever larger sums of American money as wastefully as possible. Two, higher and then much higher taxes. Three, an increasingly unbalanced budget, despite the higher taxes. Four, wild inflation of our currency. Five, government controls of prices, wages, and materials, supposedly to combat inflation. Six, greatly increased socialistic controls over every operation of our economy and every activity of our daily lives. This is to be accompanied naturally and automatically by a correspondingly huge increase in the size of our bureaucracy and in both the cost and reach of our domestic government. Seven, far more centralization of power in Washington and the practical elimination of our state lines. There is a many-faceted drive at work to have our state lines eventually mean no more within the nation than our county lines do now within the states. Eight, the steady advance of federal aid to and control over our educational system, leading to complete federalization of our public education. Nine, a constant hammering into the American consciousness of the horror of modern warfare, the beauties and the absolute necessity of peace, Peace always on communist terms, of course. And ten, the consequent willingness of the American people to allow the steps of appeasement by our government, which amount to a piecemeal surrender of the rest of the free world. Remember item number one he spoke about, quote, get rid of ever larger sums of American money as wastefully as possible. Now, this immediately brought to mind, and this is before he knew about uh, Cloward and Piven, but immediately came to mind the Cloward and Piven strategy. And uh, I'll give you a quote here that had a really good summary from preparingyou.com, uh, another website worth visiting. 
Quote, the Cloward Piven strategy is a misguided plan dreamed up in 1966 by Francis Fox Piven and Richard A. Cloward at Columbia University. It's been very popular with Marxists and leftist ideologues and accepted and advocated by many politicians like the Clintons and Obama. Their plan is meant to hasten the fall of capitalism by overloading the entitlement system, pushing society into an economic crisis and collapse, and paving the road to socialism. And as I've quoted Lenin many times before, the goal of socialism is communism. The next warning from the past is from Dwight Eisenhower, a Republican, in his farewell address in January of 1961. He talks about the threat of out-of-control military-industrial complex as well as a global scientific technocratic elite. It's the old adage about the consolidation of power in the hands of the few. And we know that power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. I'm going to play you that clip right now. Progress toward these noble goals is persistently threatened by the conflict now engulfing the world. It commands our whole attention, absorbs our very beings. We face a hostile ideology, global in scope, atheistic in character, ruthless in purpose, and insidious in method. Unhappily, the danger it poses promises to be of indefinite duration. To meet it successfully, there is call for not so much the emotional and transitory sacrifices of crisis, but rather those which enable us to carry forward steadily, surely, and without complaint, the burdens of a prolonged and complex struggle with liberty, the state. Now, this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central. It also becomes more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor, 
tinkering in his shop has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the free university, historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research, partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. You may recall from my interview with Patrick Wood about his book, Technocracy Rising, how he talked about that very rise of the technocrats. Also a book well worth reading. Next, from April 1961, then-President John F. Kennedy, a Democrat, warns us about secret societies. Ladies and gentlemen, the very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweighed the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it's in my control. And no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. 
Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. No president should fear public scrutiny of his program, for from that scrutiny comes understanding, and from that understanding comes support or opposition, and both are necessary. I am not asking your newspapers to support an administration, but I am asking your help in the tremendous task of informing and alerting the American people. For I have complete confidence <laughs> in the response and dedication of our citizens whenever they are fully informed. I not only could not stifle controversy among your readers, I welcome it. This administration intends to be candid about its errors. For as a wise man once said, an error doesn't become a mistake until you refuse to correct it. We intend to accept full responsibility for our errors, and we expect you to point them out when we miss them. Without debate, without criticism, no administration and no country can succeed, and no republic can survive. That is why the Athenian lawmaker Sola decreed it a crime for any citizen to shrink from controversy. And that is why our press was protected by the First Amendment, the only business in America specifically protected by the Constitution, not primarily to amuse and entertain, not to emphasize the trivial and the sentimental, not to simply give the public what it wants, but to inform, to arouse, to reflect, to state our dangers and our opportunities, to indicate our crises and our choices, to lead, mold, educate, and sometimes even anger public opinion. This means greater coverage and analysis of international news, for it is no longer far away and foreign, but close at hand and local. It means greater attention to improved understanding of the news as well as improved transmission. And it means, finally, that government at all levels must meet its obligation to provide you with the fullest possible information outside the narrowest limits of national security. And so it is to the printing press, to the recorder of man's deeds, the keeper of his conscience, the courier of his news, that we look for strength and assistance confident that with your help, man will be what he was born to be, free and independent. And finally, I want to play for you a clip from an interview in 1984. Yuri Bezmenov, an ex-KGB informant who defected to Canada in 1970. And he went on lecture tours and circuits all over America and Canada, warning about how the Soviets and the KGB would infiltrate and brainwash the American public through their propaganda programs. Take a listen to this and tell me if you don't see some of this happening today. Uh, as long as the Soviet junta will keep on receiving credits, money, technology, grain deals, and political recognition from all these traitors of democracy or freedom, uh, there is no hope, there is not much hope for for changes in my country, and the system 
will not collapse by itself simply because it's, it's being nourished by so-called American imperialism. This is the greatest paradox in history of mankind when uh, capitalist world supports and actively nourishes its own destroyer, destructor. I think you're trying to tell us something. Oh, yes. Country. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to <laughs> tell you that it, it has to be stopped unless you want to end up in, in gulag system and enjoy all the advantages of socialist uh, equality. Uh, working for free, catching fleas on your body, sleeping on, on the planks of, of plywood in, in Alaska this time, I guess. That's where Americans will belong, unless they will wake up, of course, and force their government to stop aiding Soviet fascism. Ideological subversion is, is the process which is legitimate, overt, and open. You, you can see it with your own eyes. All, all you have to do, all American mass media has to do, is to unplug their bananas from their ears, open up their eyes, and they can see it. There is no mystery. There is nothing to do with espionage. I know that espionage intelligence gathering looks more romantic. It sells more deodorants through the advertising, probably. That's why your Hollywood producers are so crazy about James Bond type of, of, of thrillers. But in reality, the main emphasis of the KGB is not in the area of intelligence at all. According to my uh, opinion and opinion of many defectors of my caliber, only about 15% of time, money, and manpower is spent on espionage as such. The other 85% is a slow process which we call either ideological subversion or active measures, activne meropriyatia in the language of, of the KGB, or psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interests of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. It's a great brainwashing uh, process which goes very slow and it's divided in, in four basic stages. Uh, the first one being demoralization. It takes from 15 to 20 years to demoralize a nation. Why that many years? Because this is the minimum number of years which requires to uh, educate one generation of students in the country of, of, of your enemy, exposed to the ideology of the enemy. In other words, Marxism-Leninism ideology is being pumped into the soft heads of, of, of at least three generations of American students without being challenged or counterbalanced by the basic values of Americanism, American patriotism. The result? The result you can see, most of the people who graduated in the 60s, dropouts or half-baked intellectuals, are now occupying the positions of power in the government, civil service, business, mass media, educational system. You are stuck with them. You cannot get rid of them. They are contaminated. They are programmed to think and react to certain stimuli in a certain pattern. You cannot change their mind, even if you... If you expose them to authentic information, even if you prove that white is white and black is, uh, is black, you still cannot change the basic perception and the logic of behavior. In other words, these people, uh, uh, the process of demoralization is complete and irreversible. 
to get rid society of these people, you have you need another twenty or, or, or fifteen years to educate a new generation of patriotically minded and, and, and uh, common common sense people who would be acting in favor and in the interests of, of the uh, of the United States society. And yet these people who've been programmed and as you say in place and yes. who are favorable to an opening with the Soviet concept, mm -hmm. these are the very people who would be marked for extermination in this country? Most of them, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, simply because the psychological shock when, when they will see in future what the, what the beautiful society of equality and social justice means in practice obviously they will revolt, they, 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 will, uh, they, they will be very unhappy, frustrated people. And the Marxist-Leninist regime does not tolerate these people. Uh, they, obviously they will join the links of dissenters, mm -hmm. dissidents. Yes. Uh, unlike in present United States, there will be no place for dissent in, in future Marxist-Leninist America. Uh, here you can, you can get uh, popular like uh, Daniel Ellsberg and filthy rich like Jane Fonda for being dissident, for criticizing your Pentagon. In future, these people will be simply squashed like cockroaches. Nobody is going to pay them nothing for their beautiful, noble ideas of equality. This they don't understand and uh, it will be greatest shock for them, of course. The demoralization process in the United States is basically completed already. Uh, for the last 25 years, Actually, it's overfulfilled because uh, demoralization now reaches such areas where previously not even Comrade Andropov and, and all his experts would, would even dream of such a tremendous success. Most of it is done by Americans to Americans, thanks to lack of moral standards. As I mentioned before, uh, exposure to true information does not matter anymore. A person who was demoralized is unable to assess true information. The facts tell nothing to him. Uh, even if I shower him with information, with, with authentic proof, with documents, with pictures, even if I take him by force to the Soviet Union and show him concentration camp, he will refuse to believe it until he, he is going to receive a kick in, the, in his fat bottom. When a military boot crashes his balls, then he will understand, but not before that. That's the tragic of the situation of demoralization. So basically, America is stuck with, with demoralization. And unless, even if, if you start right now, here, this minute, you start educating new generation of Americans, it will still take you 15 to 20 years to turn the tide of, uh, of ideological perception of reality uh, back to normal, no, normalcy and, and uh, patriotism. The next stage is destabilization. This time, subverter does not care about your ideas and the patterns of your consumption. Whether you eat junk food and get fat and flabby, it doesn't matter anymore. This time, and it takes only from two to five years to destabilize a nation, uh, it's, what, what matters is essentials. Economy, foreign relations, defense systems. Uh, and you can see it quite clearly that in some areas, uh, in such sensitive areas as, as uh, defense and economy, uh, the uh, influence of Marxist-Leninist ideas in the United States is absolutely fantastic. I, I could never believe it 14 years ago when I landed uh, in this part of the world that the process will go that fast. Uh, 
the next stage, of course, is crisis. It, it, it may take only up to six weeks to, to bring a country to the verge of crisis. You can see it in, in Central America now. And after crisis, with a violent change of, of power, structure, and economy, you have so-called the period of normalization. It may last indefinitely. Normalization is a cynical expression borrowed from Soviet propaganda. When the Soviet tanks moved into Czechoslovakia in 68, Comrade Brezhnev said, now the situation in brotherly Czechoslovakia is normalized. This is what will happen in the United States if you allow all these schmucks to bring the country to crisis, to promise people all kinds of goodies and the paradise on earth, uh, to, to destabilize your uh, economy, to eliminate the principle of free market competition, and to put a big brother government in Washington, D.C. All right, my fellow freedom fighters, thank you for listening. I hope that helps. For those of you who are already awake and aware of what's going on, I hope this gives you some ammunition in the fight against the new world order and globalism. Please share this information far and wide. And if I can help you any further in your research or digging for documents, I've got lots of resources at libertynow.com. Or you can just email me with any questions you may specifically have at john at libertynow.com. You may have heard in the last podcast that I did, I alluded to a special project, and I'm getting very close to launching that. Uh, if any of you are podcasters out there yourselves, you know that it's uh, not an easy job putting all this information together, and making it halfway coherent. Not saying that mine is all the time either, but um, it, it does take a lot of work and effort. And I would like to be able to get out more information more often to you if I possibly can. But uh, it also does come along with some expenses for uh, paying for bandwidth and uh, hosting and equipment and all those things. So uh, I do have a project coming up that is going to be a bit of a fundraiser and fun raiser. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about it for now. But be watching for that in the very near future. And in the meanwhile, be good, do the right thing, and keep asking questions. Have a good one. <laughs>